Revelation 3, 7-13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 7-13. Thank you. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and go to that text, Revelation 3, 7-13. Thank you for the English uh, trio there for uh, that quotation. So th- they've just upped the game here. Anyone who does a scripture reading before has to memorize it now, apparently. So, no, that was good. Let me get my uh, lectern here. Go to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue in in our series here. As you know, we have been going through the seven letters in Revelation 3, in our sermon series. We only have one left, and so uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing how the Lord concludes these letters. Uh, This is page 1030, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats there. So let me give you some background while you're turning there, and and because we'll reference the text here. If you remember, uh, this is what we've been going through the maps here. Uh, Oops, let me go back here, one here. Uh, We have uh, John on the island of Patmos here. Uh, This is where he is in exile. Uh, He was, in his old age, uh, put in exile to this island and probably doing uh, hard labor as an older man, probably in his 90s or so, about there. And uh, it was during his time in exile on this island of Patmos that he gets these visions, as we read from uh, chapter 1 several weeks ago. And so Jesus gives seven letters here into these, these seven churches. We started at Ephesus. We're following the postal route that would have been the Roman postal route in these cities. We've gone through all these cities so far. And now we're here at Philadelphia. And then we only have one more left next week there. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're at. Let me give you some background quickly about how the city got its name. Uh, the city founders, we're not exactly sure who it was. It was one of two brothers, um, but they, they were extremely loyal brothers to one another, and this is how the city got its name. The city was founded sometime after 189 BC. Uh, we don't know which, uh, which person it was uh, who, who did it. There's, like I said, these two brothers, but it got its nickname from one of the kings or one of the brothers um, uh, because 
there was some false rumors going around about his brother's death or assassination. His brother was the king. And so what he did was, is this is Attalus II. Attalus, what he heard was, is that his brother was assassinated. And so he, they, they crowned him king for a while. Well, then lo and behold, a couple months later, his brother comes back into town, right? Okay. It's kind of like, you know, that quote, the, 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 the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated, you know, type thing. And so he comes back, back into town. And so now we get this thing where, you know, back in that day, you know, most brothers were like, hey, brother, glad to see you. Looking forward to Thanksgiving. But guess what? I'm still the king, okay? Uh, but that's not what he did. Adelus immediately relinquishes the crown and says, no, 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 you're the rightful king. But then there was also a second thing of, of where, a second situation where then Rome was actually trying to dispose of the brother, the king, and, and trying to get Adelus to, to take the crown. And Adelus II, he said, absolutely not. And he remained extraordinarily loyal to his brother. And so his, this is where the name Philadelphus came in, okay? And this was the old city of brotherly love, right? Okay. And so this is where we got the name for it. Now in this town, uh, earthquakes were incredibly common. Remember last week when we talked about Sardis, how that in AD 17, there was an earthquake that leveled the city. Well, that earthquake in AD 17, the epicenter of the earthquake was Philadelphia. And this was an area that was extraordinarily prone to earthquakes and tremors, and uh, it was a lot of uncertainty. In fact, it, it was so much so that the people of the city were often very fearful to live inside the city. Uh, they would actually live outside the city walls and go in and do their business inside the city, but they would live outside the city walls, many of them, for fear of walls falling down, buildings falling down upon them. I remember when uh, I went to Haiti right after the ma major earthquake there several years ago, and we were there within a month or so of that and, and helping out with, with some relief efforts and things like that. I remember, and then we went back, I went three different times to Haiti, and, and each time I remember something, the people, they were so fearful to go inside buildings. I, I remember the first time taking some people inside a building, and, 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 and they, were, they were trembling for it, and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't fault them. They had been inside buildings when they were falling down around them. And so, and, and often in Philadelphia, there's reports, ancient uh, historical reports talk about how walls were constantly having to be repaired for the cracks of the tremors. And so people would want to live outside the city. And that's going to come into, that important detail is going to come into play later on that I'll point out. The city also went through some name changes over the time for, in a temporary sense or alternate names. Um, you remember when Sardis was destroyed, I told you that the Roman emperor uh, gave them lots of money and uh, told them they had to pay taxes for five years uh, to help rebuild the city. Well, he did the same thing for Philadelphia as well. And in response to the emperor's generosity, Philadelphia actually temporarily changed its name to honor the emperor. And therefore, the city actually went by a couple different names at the same time. Now, again, that detail is going to come into play later on. That's the reason why I'm sharing it with you now. Now, one thing I wanted you to notice about this in the reading here is that I hope you, you picked up on it, that this letter is different in the sense that there were no words of condemnation for this church, just exhortation and promises. Now, there was only one other letter that that was like, but the rest have, have had, you know, words of condemnation, and, and we don't have that here. And so we have words of praise and exhortation. So as we begin to look at this text here, what's the thesis? What do I want us to walk away from this morning? Well, I'll summarize it this way. 
We must hold fast to God's word. Doing so will bring breathtaking rewards from King Jesus himself. Okay, so that's what I want to unpack uh, for the next few minutes together today. You have an outline there, maybe if you want to take some notes and things like that. There's also some homework on the bottom. I'm not going to go through that in the service, but uh, there is some homework assignments in the handout if you're interested in that. And they're also in Church Center uh, on the app as well. So we must hold fast to God's Word. Doing so will bring breathtaking rewards from King Jesus himself. That's where we're going to go today. Let me just pause, though. Ask God's blessing is... You know, whenever we open the text and we start reading and start talking about the text, it's good, good policy and good practice to pause and ask God to help us as we go through this time. So let me just pray real quickly. Father, uh, we have come to this place in the worship service where we are opening your word and we're going to look at it for the next few minutes. God, I pray that what we say and do now will bring you great glory. God, I pray that anything I say, it would be uh, faithful and accurate to the text. God, I pray that um, my words would be led by your spirit. And God, I I pray that we would interpret the scriptures together in a faithful, accurate way. And that your spirit would take this truth and this letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Philadelphia. I pray that you would make it very applicable to where each person is at right now. God, I can make general applications here, but Lord, only you, only your spirit can take these verses and really fine-tune the application to what each person here who is listening in this room or online that they need this morning. And so we bow before you. We bow before your spirit, knowing that this is your word. This is not our word. This is your church. This is your message. And so in humility, we ask for you to help us as we interpret, as we discuss, as we deliver, as we apply this text. May you be honored and exalted. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So we're going to hold, so we hold fast to the word of God. We must do so. And if we do, it will bring breathtaking rewards from King Jesus himself. Let's work through this in four uh, points this morning. First of all, get ready. Holding fast to God's word is not easy, okay? So if we accept the premise, the thesis that I've just given, my first point to you from this text is get ready because holding fast to God's word is not easy. I don't know if you picked up on this, but it says this. He says um, in verse, uh, let's see here, in Uh, in verse number eight, he says, I know that you have but little power. Most people understand this to mean that this meant that they were a small congregation, that they were not a large congregation. They were a small church. Now, the average size church in America today is 75 people, okay, around that. And so, you know, I don't know what the, the, the size of the congregation was in ancient Philadelphia, but I do know that according to Jesus's words here, they were not a, 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 a powerhouse. They were not one that had lots of programs. They were not one that had a, a significant even influence probably in the city. They were, they were a small church. And, and Jesus recognizes that right away. And, and I think that what that, that helps us understand is that if we're going to hold fast to God's word, it's not easy. Easy. And, 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 and sometimes we feel like it's not easy because of, of our size, of our stature. Now, it may not be only limited to the size. It could also be, like I said, the amount of influence that they had in a city. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like in the culture that we live in, I'm screaming into the wind and the wind just takes the words away, right? Okay. But Jesus here, he says to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I know, I know your situation. I know where you're at. 
And I believe that you and I can find comfort in that today by saying that Jesus says, Jesus, I know Memorial where you're at. I, I know the church. I know the culture you're in. I know the situation you're in. But keep in mind that Jesus has consistently said that it's not the mighty and the noble that he chooses to use. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but... But God, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. They were a small church, and Jesus looks at this church of Philadelphia and says, I know you're but little power, but John is remembering here. John is remembering the consistent message in the New Testament. He's conveying it to us. He's writing this down, what Jesus gave to us, and he says, consistently, it's not the strong, it's not the mighty, it's not the noble. And this is one of the reasons why whenever there's a an actor or there's a, a professional athlete or something like that that, that makes a profession of Christ. And, and it, I, I see the Christian community a lot of times like, oh, this person needs to be the spokesperson. This person needs, and they, and they really elevate them really quickly. And we've seen examples of this over time. And people look at this and say, okay, well, you've got the platform now and you've got the ability to, to reach thousands and all the people and all your fans and stuff like that rarely does that work out. Now, there are examples of that. There, there are examples of, of professional athletes or people in the spotlight, maybe uh, uh, someone who's had a position of power who have used that for good. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but rarely is that the case. Do you know why? Because it's, it's, it's not that that God has primarily chosen to use. You know what he's ch- primarily chosen to use to do the work in the ministry, to change the culture, to change the world? He's used small churches. He's used a small gathering of people, people people who have banded together and said, you know what? We're going to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We don't have the name. We don't have the pedigree. We don't have the reputation, but we have Christ and we have the gospel. You see, that's what God has used. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, I know compared to other churches in your city, in Philadelphia, you have other churches doing things and other groups of people that are doing things. I know that you are considered small and powerless, but I love you. He's going to say that later on, and we're going to unpack that here in just a minute. So they were a small church, but I don't know if you noticed this here, but you know, when someone was reading, I think, I think it was Joshua David in his section, who talks about how that, that they were up against the synagogue of Satan. This is verse 9. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say there are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what is this talking about here? The synagogue of Satan. Now, remember, we've seen this in a previous letter. We've we've already seen some of this language here. What is happening here is that these were unbelieving Jews who rejected Christians. They rejected Christianity, and they were reporting them to the Roman authorities. Now, now you say, what do you mean they were reporting them? Well, understand this, that for the first several decades after the uh, establishment of the church, after Jesus' death and resurrection, okay, so we're in like the Acts 2 range of the, the timeline of Scripture, okay? So when Christianity and the church was first being established here, 
Christianity in the church was actually considered by the Roman authorities as a sect of Judaism, okay? And so they kind of left them alone. Um, they, 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 see, the Roman authorities, they didn't really care about other people's religions as long as everyone gave tribute to Caesar, okay? You, you could worship other things and other gods, but as long as you gave tribute to Caesar, you were fine. And so the, 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 the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, had kind of done that. Okay, and so what was happening is as the Romans were looking at this newly established Christian group, in their mind, they thought this was just a, another sect of Judaism, so they didn't really care much about it. As time would go on, however, and hostilities between unbelieving Jews and Christians began to get stronger and stronger, what would happen is the unbelieving Jews would go to the Roman authorities and say, no, these people are not us. Okay, this is, this is a different group, and you need to deal with this group. And that's what was happening here. And so this is the reason why he says this is the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue, talking about the, the gathering place of the, the Jewish group. And he says that they ha- are, are turning away from, they say that they're the, the, the Jewish people. And they got to understand, what is the Jewish people? The Jewish people is that, that people group that God had formed through Abraham. This was a group that God had established here for his people. And they were rejecting him. And he says that they say that they're truly my people, but in heart, they're really not. They're unbelieving. And what they were doing to this, this group of people here, these group of Christians in Philadelphia, is that they were, they were uh, uh, reporting them to the authorities. And furthermore, they were kicking them out of any type of gathering in a synagogue. Because remember, in the beginning, they were meeting in the synagogue as much as possible because Yahweh was worshipped there. And so they thought that they could go there. And so Christians would gather on Saturday, then they would gather together on Sunday. We see this pattern in the New Testament. But eventually, they were being kicked out of the synagogue and saying, no, you can't be part of this. And they were reporting to the authorities. So this was a small church that was up against the synagogue of Satan. So if we're going to hold fast to God's word, knowing that breathtaking rewards are coming, if we're going to hold fast to God's word, we need to get ready because it is not easy. Just like the, the people of Philadelphia, they have their challenges, so do we. We have our challenges. We have our challenges in our culture. We have our challenges due to the fact that we don't have the ability to do great things like other churches can do and stuff like that. We're we're not a huge congregation, but yet I'm not discouraged by that. We are a group of people that we are imperfect and we are sinners, that we are trying to serve a perfect Savior, and sometimes we're going to make mistakes, and sometimes we're going to sin against one another. And my prayer is that what our church does is that we don't get discouraged by the numbers. What our prayer, my prayer for our church is that we are encouraged by what has drawn us together, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we live that out. And we live that out for one another. And we're not looking for the measurements of, uh, of by worldly standards, like it says in 1 Corinthians. We're looking at what the Bible says is the symbol of strength. And it's by looking at the Word of God and letting the Word of God change us. It's not by a whole list of rules and things like that that we set up and you got to dress this way and got to look this way. It's by looking at the Word of God and saying, How does it change my heart? How does it change who I am? How does it change the decisions that I make, not just on Sundays, but Sunday through Saturday? How does this this impact the way I treat one another? How does this impact the way I parent? What about my marriage? What about how I go to work? What about all of these things? You see, that's what the gospel needs to do for us. And that's how we're going to hold fast to God's word. So get ready, though. 
It's not easy. There's a second point that I want to talk to you this morning. Is that this? If we're going to get ready because it's not easy, but I want you to be encouraged, though. Holding fast to God's word is possible through Jesus. This text makes that very clear here, that even though it's hard, it is possible. Now, now look at verse 7 again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, we've talked about this before in this series, that the first line of every letter, Jesus is using some terms to describe himself, okay? And so, how does he describe himself here? The Holy One, the true one. And so, we need to be encouraged because if we're going to hold fast to God's Word, it's possible through who Jesus is. And we need to be encouraged, first of all, by Jesus' nature here. He's holy, it says, This is the idea of the sinless nature of God here. Only God is truly holy. And what Jesus is claiming here is he's claiming that he is God. He is one with God the Father. And so what he says is, whatever I deem good is good. Whatever I deem wrong is wrong because he is holy. He is the standard of righteousness. And so if he looks at someone and says, listen, I don't care about your church size. I don't care about that. What I care about is are you holding fast to the word of God? That's what I care about. If the holy one of God is saying that, then we must say that that must be our standard here, right? Okay, if the Holy One, the one that is sinless, the one who is equal with the Father, says, listen, it's not about programs, it's not about size, it's not about anything else, it's about are you holding fast to the Word of God? Are you being obedient? Is the Word of God changing you and impacting you on a daily basis? If the Holy One of God says that, then we can be encouraged because He's the one that's setting the standard. He's the one that then is the one that's setting the marching orders that we are to follow, right? Because He is the Holy One, so His nature, His holy. But also it says there, he's true. His nature is true. He's the true one. This is the idea of being genuine, authentic, real. This is in in contrast to verse 9, when it says that these are the people of the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. Okay, do you see the contrast there? He says, these people say one thing about themselves, but it is not true. Here he's saying, I am the true one. I am the genuine one. What I say is truth. My mind goes to John. Chapter 14, I believe it is. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus is the truth. He establishes truth. And so by his nature, we can be encouraged to follow the word of God, to hold fast to the word of God is the right course for us because his nature says we're on the right path. And so what we need to be here is we need to be people who are centered on the scriptures. This is the reason why we tell you open your Bibles. This is the reason why we encourage you to bring your Bible to church. This is the reason why we have a church-wide Bible reading program. Not that you have to do our program, but we're just trying to give conduits and give avenues for you to have something that you can be reading in the scriptures each day. We want you to know that the scriptures are for every person. The scriptures are written so that every person can read them. The Spirit of God helps us understand, helps us apply it to our lives. This is the reason why we are saying, please be people of the book. Because Jesus' nature says, I am holy and I am true. And John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? Jesus personifies the Word. So, We can be encouraged because Jesus' nature says that following the word is the right course of action. 
but also not just his nature, but his work. We can be encouraged by his work. Now, some of you were hoping I would talk about this. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I guess that there's probably a couple of you who are like, I hope he talks about that, because I'm not really sure what that means. You know, this is one of those times where it, it, you got you to kind of understand the whole arc of Scripture, okay? This is a reference to Isaiah 22, okay? So if you're taking notes, I'd write Isaiah 22 in the, in the reference there. Isaiah 22 is the reference here, and in, in, I won't go into all the details there, the story that's being recorded in Isaiah 22, but what's happening there is there's an official in the royal household who was going to act on behalf of the king's authority. So he was going to make decisions on behalf of King David, okay? And so this person was going, he was being entrusted with this authority decision, and this phrase, the key of David, was actually given to him, saying, okay, you have the authority to make this decision in the name of the king. And so what, what the language of Isaiah is doing is it's used to present, and this is what, what, what Jesus is claiming for himself here, is that he's presenting Christ himself as the Davidic Messiah with absolute power to control even the entrance into the heavenly kingdom. That's what he's talking about. He says, I have the key of David, he's basically saying, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. He's basically saying, who has the authority about eternity in the future, about the afterlife for humanity? Who has the authority to make these eternal decisions? And he says, I do. Okay? Jesus says, I am holy. I am true. And I have complete sovereign authority here. Now, this is why we can be encouraged. Because holding fast to God's word is not us trying to earn merit. Holding fast to God's word is not us trying to do enough good things where God sits and says, you know what? You know, you've done some bad things, but boy, you held fast to God's word too. And in the scale, it seems to tip it just a little bit in his favor. So you now have entrance into the kingdom of God. That is not how we get there, folks. We get there by the sovereign control of God. Now, for sure, we have to believe. Of course, I'm not denying that. And we're going to talk about man's responsibility in a few minutes here. This is a great text because we both have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty in it together here. Now, Jesus says, I have authority over this. And so we can be encouraged that we're not, we don't have to try to do enough good things to get God's favor. Should we do good things? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But that's not how we get to heaven. That's not how we have eternal life. It's Jesus' nature and his work that enable us to have eternal life. His nature and the fact that he was sinless. This is the reason why he lived that sinless life. This is the reason why he lived that entire life of obedience, a life that you and I could never live. Because the Bible says, for the wages of the payment of sin is death. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That was the payment of sin. And so the only way for us to be re-justified, the only way for us to have peace with God, to be declared not guilty, would be to live a life of perfect obedience. And none of us could do that. Romans chapter 5 says that we are born with a sin nature, right? By one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, right? Seems like a bum deal. But, but, the text goes on in Romans 5, by the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. 
And so Jesus' life of perfect obedience, his nature, his holiness, his work in his life and his death and his resurrection make it so that we can have eternal life. Be encouraged. We can hold fast to God's word by holding fast, by holding true and being our confidence, not in our abilities, but in the nature and work of Jesus Christ. I must move on. There's a third point here, and this is to be faithful. So we're to be ready, get ready, uh, because it's going to be difficult. We need to be encouraged, but we also need to be faithful because holding fast to God's word is indeed our responsibility um, and this is where I talked about how the, this text, we have, we have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This is really two sides to the same coin, as it's often been said. We have God, his sovereign rule, and then we have man being responsible for the decisions that they're supposed to do and the work that they're supposed to do. Now, again, how these two perfectly line up is a mystery in some ways. But the Bible teaches both clearly. And my commitment has always been, when the text teaches God's sovereignty, I'm going to teach God's sovereignty. And when the text teaches man's responsibility, I'm going to teach man's responsibility. And here, we get the example of both being in one text. And so I get to do both in this one here, in this one sermon here in this text. What does this text teach us about uh, our responsibility? First of all, is that we must finish well. We see this, it says here in uh, 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 verse 10, because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see that he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast. In other words, he's saying, finish well. Stay faithful. He's coming soon. This is in the present tense, which says the idea of this command is, is this uh, continual action. So what we could say here is he says, I want you to keep holding fast. I don't want you to stop because I am coming soon. Finish well. And so the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back should motivate us and should encourage us to be faithful to the scriptures and to follow Christ. He is coming soon, my friends. Now you say, wait a minute here. Preacher's been saying that for a long time. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, some of you might be thinking, and I remember another preacher standing right where you were, Jeremy, and saying, he is coming soon. And he probably was hitting the pulpit harder than you were and all that stuff. And so let me tell you, you know, I don't know if he's truly coming back. You know, I remember my grandfather. Uh, before he passed away when I was 17 years old, I remember having conversations with him. I remember him looking at me and saying, Jeremy, Jesus is coming soon, Right? I remember this in the 80s, Jesus coming soon. Some of you remember this a lot longer than I remember with people saying, Jesus is coming soon, right? So are we wrong? Are we just, is this pie in the sky thinking? Is this trying to get an escape out of this world? No, because theologically speaking, John says, brother, these are the last days. We're in the last days. What this means is that there's nothing else that has to happen in order for Jesus to come back. And what this means is that there's a warning that Peter gives in his second epistle. Let me encourage you, if you're saying, well, you know what, I don't think, P, I don't think Jesus is coming back anytime soon, or you've been saying it for a long time, I would just encourage you to be careful with that because Peter warns them and says, you know, in the last days there's going to be scoffers. They're going to say, where is his coming? Don't be a scoffer. Understand that in a moment we could hear Jesus return. We could see his return in just a moment. It could be today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Could be today. 
Could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now, I don't know. But I know this, that Jesus says, I am coming soon, and we've got to be ready. We've got to be faithful. We have to finish well. Don't be lulled into sleep here. Finish well. And then there's the other thing here, the other part of this is, don't think you're above failure in this. Our responsibility, he says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that it is possible to fall away. Now, we're told in John, in his letters, uh, we're told that those who fall away were never truly of us, okay? So we're not talking about someone who has been saved by God's grace, and then they lose it. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we are talking about is that there are people who think they're believers and they're not. The end of the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture for me. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins by listing who is it going to be or who is in the kingdom. That's called the Beatitudes. At the end of the sermon, he says those who are not in the kingdom, and this is what he says. He says, there will be many that will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus is going to look at them, and he says, I am going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. This is why Peter, excuse me, Paul in Corinthians, he tells people, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He's writing that to a church gathering people. And so I'm not here to say that you uh, um, can lose your salvation, but what I, can, what I can say on the authority of Scripture is that there are people who believe that they're fine with God, and they're really not. Don't think that we are above failure. Don't think that we're above abandoning the faith. This is why we hold fast to the word of God. This is why we hold fast each day. Establish yourselves rooted in the scriptures of Jesus Christ. So holding fast, be faithful. This is our responsibility. Finish well. Hold fast. Don't think you're above failure. This is why in Romans chapter 11, Paul, he's writing to the Gentiles. He says, okay, you've been grafted in, right? Okay, the plan with Israel, they were unbelieving. We're grafting the Gentiles into this. And this is why he looks at the Gentiles and says, but don't get arrogant. Don't look down upon them because if, if we can take them out and graft you in, don't you think that we can also take you out? Okay? There's a warning all throughout Scripture. Stay faithful. This is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. Finish well. Some of you may look back in times in your life where the, the Spirit of God was really vibrant in your life and, and, and your commitment to the Scriptures and, and, and obeying the Scriptures was passionate. And now if you look, if you're honest with yourself, it's not the way. There's been a cooling. There's been a drifting. Hebrews talks about a drifting away. Don't drift away. Your responsibility is to hold fast. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. I need to finish with this last uh, here, the last point here. Be wise. Holding fast to God's word is worth the difficulty. So get ready. It's going to be difficult. Be encouraged. It's possible through Jesus. And then we just said that, you know, that uh, um, we need to be faithful because it is our responsibility. And now I want you to be wise. This is that second part of the thesis statement where I said that breathtaking rewards come from Jesus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but there's a lot of them. You can see them in your outline there. But I'm just going to walk through these quickly here. One of the first things is that we see, according to this, is that we 
will be vindicated. Did you see in verse 9 at the end, he says, Behold, I will make them, these unbelieving Jews, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You will be vindicated if we hold fast, if we stand firm in the difficulty and in the unpopular positions, and we're holding fast to the word of God. It says that you will be vindicated. This, this idea of people bowing down before them has the idea of vindication. This is not the idea of bowing in worship. This is the idea of bowing in submission. The unbelieving Jews would finally accept and submit to the God's plan for the Gentile salvation, to that God's plan was worked out. You see, it was thought in Old Testament thought that the Gentiles would be forced to pay homage to the Jews in the end. This is what they held fast to. They said that you're going to restore the glory to Israel. All the Gentiles are going to bow before you. This was the prevailing thought. And here, what Jesus says, he says, no, 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 no. The unbelieving Jews are going to bow before you. Not because we're worthy. Not because we're better than. But because it's the submission to the plan of God that is happening here. So they would have been greatly encouraged. They would have understood this Old Testament thought. They would have been greatly encouraged that they were small. They were insignificant. They felt that they were being overrun by culture. They felt they were being overrun by the people who should have been supporting them in the synagogue. They were being shut out of the synagogue. And yet, here Jesus is saying, they'll bow before you. Don't worry. You will be vindicated not just vindication, but there's the idea of being publicly affirmed there. He says, and they will learn that I have loved you. That's powerful. That is powerful. They will know that I have loved you. Can you imagine that? The world being made says, hey, I love you. One day Jesus will say, Dan, I love you. When he would say, you know, Allie, I love you. Blake, I love you. Bart, I love you. This is what Jesus is going to say, right? Ryan, I love you. Brenda, I love you. That's what Jesus is going to say. Hold fast, my friends. He's going to do this. I love you publicly. I saw a YouTube clip. It's in the sermon resources in the app, and I, I, I'm not going to be able to, to recount it you know, as well as uh, as uh, Alistair Begg does this. But Alistair Begg, he's a Scottish uh, pastor. He's actually pastoring in the States, but he's from Scotland. And so for no other reason, you just need to listen to him for his cool accent, right? And so he has this thing in a sermon, his little clip that I, I, I came across my radar this week, and I watched it, and I thought, this is so good. He tells a story of how he imagines what would happen about the thief on the cross, right? Okay, uh, so you get the guy that uh, uh, looks at Jesus. He's mocking Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, you know, hey, and he, and he and then and he kind of stands up for Jesus, and he says, remember me. And, and, then, and then Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So as Alistair Begg tells it, and I can't do it as good as he does, look at the clip, and he'll do it much better. But he, he says this. He says, you know, can you imagine this guy? He, he gets into heaven, and, and, and people are just like, what are you doing here? You know? And so, you know, the, the guy, you know, checking him in or something like that is just like, you know, so how did you get here? And the thief on the cross is like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who was being killed for, you know, you know, terrible sins and crimes and stuff like this. And I mean, you know, he didn't have time to be baptized and all this stuff. And so, but yeah, here he is. Here he is. He's in heaven, right? And, and so the angels is like, you know, look at him and says, okay, well, you know, uh, how did you get here? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Okay, well, I don't know. So he gets a supervisor angel over and, you know, says, okay, what are you going to? So the supervisor says, well, let's, you know, let's just make sure that you understand justification by faith alone, right? 
He's like, I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, all right, okay, okay. Well, so, so do you know about the atonement and all this stuff? He's like, I don't know. So they said, well, what do you know? You know, how did you get here? He says, I don't know. All I know is that the guy in the middle of the cross said I could come, okay? All right, and so here I am, okay? So, so here I am, right? And so that's all it takes, right? It takes the guy in the middle of the cross to say, I love you and you're in my kingdom. That's what it takes, right? And so this is the beauty of this, is that one day, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not about us. It's not about our words. It's about what Jesus has done for us and us believing in him and believing wholeheartedly in him and trusting in him that then one day publicly, eternally, he will say, I love you. That's an amazing concept. The one who spoke the world into existence, the one who is holy, faithful, and true will say, I love you. The true one who never speaks a lie will say, I love you. It's an amazing thought will be publicly affirmed, but will also be protected, right? It says that this, in verse 10, that this is the idea of patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. Lots of ink has been spent on this verse here. Uh, those of the pre-tribulational, dispensational view, they would say that this is the, the one that was talk about how being saved from a seven-year tribulation. That is a possible interpretation. Um, I don't think that's the main point here. I'm not saying that the seven-year tribulation, being raptured from that, is not biblical. That's not my point. I think there's stronger text for that if that's going to be your position. I think Thessalonians is a stronger text for it than this. Um, uh, although you guys know, I've been transparent with you how that, you know, this is something that I, I'm constantly debating in my mind here, but it doesn't really matter. But while I'll say this is that here is a patient endurance here. This is this idea of protecting from this. I think that this is the idea of what Jesus says is more about protection because in John 17, he says in the high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, okay? And so this is where I think that this may not be the best text for a pre-tribulational rapture viewpoint. Again, if that's your position, not saying it's not biblical, it is a legitimate biblical understanding, okay, of end times. Uh, I just think good people disagree on this, and there's room in our church for disagreement on that issue. But I will say this, that the theme that I see in the New Testament is not so much so about being snatched away from tribulation and trials. It's about being protected through them, okay? And so whether or not this is true or not, I don't know, but I do about the rapture. But what I do know is that we are told that we are going to be protected. If the pre-tribulational rapture viewpoint is correct, that's what it's talking about. And Great. But if it's not, if, if it's not, if this is referring to a more general saving through it, either way, the point that Jesus is making is true, is that he is going to protect them because of their faithful endurance. They will be protected spiritually at the very least, if not also physically according to this text. I need to move on. That there will be a permanent place here. That there will be a permanent place. Did you notice it says there, the one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my city, of my God, in the name of my city, my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. And so that we will have a permanent place. This idea of being called a pillar has the idea of permanence or secure. 
door. Did you notice it says never to leave? What is that a reference to? Remember I told you that the people in Philadelphia, they were living outside the city walls, right? Because of fear, right? A fear was going to happen. He says, you're never going to have to leave. You're never, because you are the pillar. I am going to make you the pillar of this. You are going to have the permanent place. You're not going to have to leave anymore because you will be firmly established by my protection because I have loved you. I like what Robert Thomas says about this. He says, by becoming pilgrims in this life, Jesus promises that we shall be pillars in the next. I love that. So we will have a permanent place, but we'll also have the name of God according to this text here. This is the idea that we will not be known any longer as a sinner, a liar, a cheat, an unfaithful one, a hypocrite, an angry person, or an unworthy to be in heaven, even though all those things are true. That's not what we're going to be known as. You know, one of the things whenever I read Hebrews chapter 11, and they say, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, right? At some point, I'm sure Rahab would be like, can we, can we drop the prostitute title? Okay, <laughs> you know, can, can we drop that? You know, we all get a new name in heaven. We all get a new identity, right? We have the name of God. Instead of being known as the liar, cheat, unfaithful, hypocrite, angry person, or whatever our sin is, instead of that defining us, we are forever known to be a child of God's. That's an amazing concept. So whatever guilt you're carrying with you today, you run to Christ. You unload that burden on him. And for all eternity, you will not be known by whatever sin that was. You will be known as my son, according to God. That is a breathtaking reward. We'll also have this new, uh, new name of the New Jerusalem. What's that talk about? Let's we'll just speak about our eternal citizenship. Um, remember, Philadelphia changed their name to honor the emperor. Jesus changes our name to honor our relationship and our cohabitation with him. And so this is talking about your citizenship. You, you belong to me. You're going to dwell with me for all eternity. You, you, you're not going to have any other location but in my presence. And then finally, we will have Jesus' name. Jesus personally claims you. He personally vouches for you. The creator, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the keys of David says, you're going to have my name. Hold fast. You're going to hold my, you're going to have my name. When I first got my driver's license, I was about 16 years old and I was driving around the neighborhood. I think I was driving to work that day and, you know, as 16-year-olds do, um, you don't fully understand the ramifications of pushing on the pedal too hard. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And so I, you know, I was going to work and, uh, you know, I was going a little faster than I should have been probably. And I look in my mirror and what do I see? I see some lights flashing. Instantly, I'm like, oh, no. So I pull over. Police officer comes up to me. I'm thinking, okay, be nice, be respectful, apologize. He's going to give you a warning. You're young. He's going to give you a break, okay? Ah, the naivety of youth. (laughs) So he comes up to me, and he's, Okay, you know, let me take you. And so I said, he was, have you ever gotten a ticket before? I said, no, sir. No, sir. 
Never gotten a ticket before. Have you been pulled over before? No, sir. First time. First time. Boy, I, I know I was wrong. I should have been paying more attention. Yeah, you should have been. You should have. I'll be right back. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to give me a warning. First time, right? And he comes back with a piece of paper in his hand. He says, I want you to sign here. And I'm thinking to myself, because I've never gone through this process before, you know, is this a warning? No, no, no. It was a citation. It was a speeding ticket, you know. So he said, well, you can go to court and you can dispute it or you can try to get, you know, the points reduced or whatever and things like that and everything like that. So I decided to do that. So I walk into the, the court and, and uh, you know, it'll be my first time, you know. And so I stand there. So the, the judge asked me, they said, they said, well, are you guilty or innocent? I said, well, I'm guilty. You know, I said, why are you here? I said, well, I'm just trying to, you know, it's my first time. Uh, you know, I, I, I would just really like some mercy on this. And so before the judge could respond, I hear a voice in the corner speak up and say, I know him. I can vouch for him. He's a good kid. I look over and I see my friend's father, who is a police officer, who was there for his own court appearance for, you know, because police officers have to appear in court and things like that. I hadn't noticed him, but he spoke up on my behalf and he says, I know him. He lives down the street from me. He's a friend of my son's. He's a good kid. I can vouch for him. And the the judge said, that's good enough for me and dismissed the ticket. I was, I was really grateful, right? I had someone that spoke up for me and vouched for me and said, you know what, I'm going to put my name on the line for this kid here. Now, as moving and as grateful as I was for that, that is nothing compared to Jesus saying, my name is on him. My name is on him. And so this is why we stay faithful. This is why we hold fast to the word of God. Because one day, my friends, Jesus says, my name is on you for all eternity. And the Father, the righteous judge, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the name of Christ on us. So stay faithful. Hold fast to God's word. Because if we do, the rewards from King Jesus himself are breathtaking, are breathtaking.